0: Good morning. The pressure is on now. We have two members coming in, and the right hand of fellowship, and a lot of notes standing before us. Have you ever been taunted before? Maybe bullied is the term we would use. A taunt is a remark made in order to anger, wound, or provoke someone. So this often occurs in high school students. You see a group of students taunting another one about their weight or the clothes that they wear they're not in. Or for only having one parent. Maybe at school you were the butt end of all the jokes because you weren't at the top of the class academically or you didn't fit in socially, or maybe you just didn't seem to understand how the school worked, so you felt ostracized and you were often made fun of. Well, how did you respond when that taunt came your way? How did you respond when you, maybe you were not the one being taunted, but you saw someone else being taunted? How did you respond? Well, luckily for us, we have Google now, Uh, which can tell us how to respond when taunting comes our way. Uh, I found this list on Google for us. Uh, Number one is never blame yourself when you're taunted. Use humor against playful teasing. Call them out on their bullying. Take a deep, calming breath. Don't insult them back. Walk away or just avoid them. Consider the person's motivation and I think this last one here actually gets us close to how we should respond, but plan your response to repeated teasing in the future. This one isn't, isn't too bad, planning a response. Now, while this is silly, we can go on about comical taunting experiences. Let me ask you a different question. How should you and I respond when life taunts us? you might say, what do you, what do you mean? When we experience pain and suffering and grief and loss and fear of all kinds, these experiences have a way of taunting our faith in God. Life's hardships often have a way of speaking messages of doubt or lies about the very character of God that we have known to be true. What do we do when what we know to be true about God is not lining up with the experiences that we see in life? We might have this expression God, I know that you are, but right now I am experiencing and I am tempted to doubt everything that I've known to be true about you. Have you ever been here before? Well, do you know what you are doing in that moment when you cry out to the Lord? You were lamenting. That's what you were doing. Lament is not always a bad thing. As we open up the book of Psalms, lament Psalms actually occupy the third of all Psalms. The lament Psalms provide us with words to say and a way forward when we are crippled speechless by the if i could the minor key of life a third of the psalms i mentioned are actually dedicated to this genre when what we know about god to be true and life's experience seem to cause doubt about those things in that tension right there that that's where we need to lean into the psalms of lament now you might be here this morning experiencing that stanza of the song the minor key of life you might have just come out of a minor key or you might be cresting the hill and you hear the intro of a minor key and you know it's coming what do we do well this morning I want to look at psalm chapter oh there I did I made the mistake you should never say psalm chapter something this morning I want to look at psalm 3 And I want us to see that when taunted by life's minor key, the believer's only confidence is God. So turn with me to the third psalm. Psalm 3 For the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, open our eyes now that we might behold wondrous things from your word. In Christ's name we come before you. Amen. As I already mentioned, I think what we see in this psalm is that you, when you and I are, are taunted by life's minor key, our only confidence is in God. Well, here's a question. How can God become our confidence in those circumstances? What should we do when the minor key comes our way? Well, I see three things in this psalm. When life's circumstances taunt your faith in God's character, you must cry out to God with your complaint, remind yourself of God's character, and resolve to trust in it, And finally, call on God to defend his proven character. Now, notice with me the superscription at the beginning of the psalm. Not all psalms have these. Quite frankly, we often don't really ever know the context of certain psalms, but this one we get a little insight. It says, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So, this psalm helps us with this context, with this scenario. David is said to have written this psalm while he's fleeing from his son Absalom. We read of this account in 2 Samuel 15 to 19. There are many connections between the experiences that David seems to describe in Psalm 3 that we could turn right over to 2 Samuel 15 to 19 and find very many connections. So I think we could read Psalm 3 and 2 Samuel 15 to 19 with each other in mind. Now while we understand very quickly that there is this military sense of language going here. There's foes, there's fighting, there's shields. Absalom was revolting against his father David and seeking to take his throne and the kingdom away from him, seeking to kill him. This is the context that we have of this song. And while you and I might not be in a literal military war conflict, this military crisis and the need for help, the need for victory is a helpful analogy to all the many different crises that we find ourselves facing and find ourselves in need. And it is for this reason that this psalm has been included in the general source of, of Israel's worship because life is not always sunshine. It is dark. And what the psalm of lament, this specific one does for here, is it gives us a place to turn when we don't know where else to go. So when life's circumstances taunt your faith in God's character, you must first cry out to God with your complaint. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. David's prayer of lament opens with an address. He says, Lord, Lord, in which very quickly we realize this is coming from a place of pain and distress. This is far more significant than just a, a prayer that we might repeat just normally in our morning. There, David is crying from a place of distress, a place of desperation. Notice, I mean, in, in RESV, it's easy to see David as he contemplates his situation. He uses this term many, three times. Many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of me. First time David says many is he's describing what his problem is. He has enemies. He has foes. He has people who are seeking to attack him, seeking to capture him, seeking to, in fact, kill him, if you read in 2 Samuel 15 through 19. Notice how David says in verse 2 what else he describes of his enemies. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Now, when we read salvation here in this verse, I do not think that we should think there is no forgiveness of sins and adoption into the family of God. David is speaking here of deliverance. It's a very similar term in the original language, uh, salvation, deliverance, help, as the translation you might be holding in front of you. The way that David repeats this word is emphasizing the fact in verse 2 that he is receiving taunts. We get this picture in our mind of many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. We get this illustration of as David's enemies close in closer and closer, and closer. His desperation gets greater, and greater, and greater. Uh, Forgive my illustrations this morning. They all come from, like, our camp experiences at uh, Alpine Ministries. It's just the stage of life. So uh, there is, we play paintball often at, uh, when we go to teen camp, and there is this one, um, one game that we play in paintball called the Alamo, and there is this really, like, ratchety structure down at the bottom of a ravine, and everybody starts out, except for, like, three people in the Alamo, okay? And everybody starts out, like, 100, 200 yards away, and they're going to try to take over the Alamo. And the people inside the Alamo are trying to kill everyone who is approaching them, okay? Well, at first, people are so far away that, you know, you have walls on every side of you, you're like, I, my six on every side is, I'm good, you know, nothing to worry. But as those paintball shots get a little bit closer, you begin to get a little bit more, the, the desperation begins to, you know, the hair on the back of your neck begins to stand up So until you see this barrel just pop over the top of the Alamo and you're screaming for mercy or wave the white flag or something. Okay. This is the situation that we see David in. And notice, it's not just a situation of physical concern, but he has people who are taunting his faith in God. He has people who are telling him, your God is not going to rescue you. Your God has no power or ability to deliver you. David's enemies are not only threatening his physical well-being, but they are threatening him spiritually by casting doubt on his God. When David says, they're saying of my soul, he's saying, they're saying of everything that I know to be true, everything that I believe they are casting doubt on. David's enemies are questioning the power of God to deliver David from his circumstances. And we can only conclude that the human side or the human self of David is beginning to give in to these doubts and these lies. Now, while you and I might not be surrounded by many enemies who are seeking to kill us or welt us, are you sitting here this morning and could give your life's circumstances this very same description? I just feel like everything is against me. Many, many, many people are saying of me, I can't go on tomorrow. Maybe there's a situation at work you feel ostracized because of your faith. Or maybe you chose to trust in Christ and now certain family relationships have suffered because of it. Quite possibly, you might be sitting here this morning feeling defeated or overwhelmed like you have been in the octagon with life. And I mean, you feel like you just got taken out by life this week. It could be that the pregnancy test came back negative again. Maybe you or another person has received that the disease has come back again. Maybe your child has rejected the faith that you so faithfully exposed him while you raised him or her, and now he has nothing to do with it. And because of circumstances like these, you're beginning to say, yeah, it seems tempting to buy into those doubts. There is no deliverance for me. You may feel so weak spiritually and you're thinking so clouded that you begin to question where God really is. The first thing that we should note about David's response to his pressing circumstance is that he involves God in his drama. He involves God in the pain and suffering and fear that he is facing. There is a very distinct pattern that we see in the Lament Psalms, and the first one is they always turn to God. They cry out to God, and they lay out their circumstance as it is. They involve God in their circumstance. We can't miss the significance of this. Because the first sign of faith in God, of a believer who is walking through pain and trial, is opening up their hearts to God in prayer. This might be a scary thing. Crying out to God might seem too honest, too vulnerable, too open, too risky. But could I just say that something far more dangerous than crying out to God for help in time of need is silent despair? Giving God the silent treatment is a sign that we have lost doubt we have given into this taunt giving god the silent treatment is ultimately a manifestation of our pride and unbelief a very familiar verse first peter 5 6 and 7 we often don't connect these two verses but they are in the original language humble yourselves under the mighty hand of god so that he might exalt you in due time how do you do this casting your care on him because he cares for you. Those who live in silent despair and refuse to cry out to God have concluded that God doesn't care, he cannot hear, and nothing ever is going to change. And people who are tempted to believe these doubts, they stop praying and can ultimately end up throwing in the towel and giving up and it is those who believe doubts and lines like there is no deliverance for me and god who live in de- sil- in silent despair when trials come their way but david shows us a different path it is not enough to simply involve your involve god in your pain and suffering by cry out to god sharing a complaint with him and then just be like okay i'm, I'm waiting for it where is the deliverance i prayed Unfortunately, this is where many people stop. They cry out to God and they pour out their hearts to him and then, but never move past this. And we see psalmist, specifically David here, in trial move further from crying out to God with your complaint to, secondly, reminding yourself of God's character and resolving to trust in it. So when life circumstances taunt your faith in God's character, you must first cry out to God with your complaint, but secondly, you must remind yourself of God's character and resolve to trust in it. Look at verses 3 to 6. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again. For the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Don't zoom past the first word in verse three. But. Some translations might have yet. This is the key word in almost every single lament psalm. it signifies a shift that while David's heart and mind are so tempted to be consumed with his circumstance, yet he resolves to say, but you, O God, I will trust in you. David's actual statement is a proposition about who God is, not necessarily his trust in him. This is a fundamental turn towards trust. Life experiences are this, but you, God, are fill in the blank. And this shift of trust that David expresses is simply not a statement of a belief or a conviction that he has. Rather, it's his resolve to stand confidently in who God is, what he has done, and what he can do. No matter what the life circumstances are leading him to believe about God. We don't have really time to unpack a good definition of trust. But in this psalm, it seems to be that trust is believing what you know to be true about God, even though the facts of your suffering are calling that belief into question. I'll say that again. Trust is believing what you know to be true about God, even though the facts of your suffering are calling that belief into question. So when we're put in this situation, we can say with David, hey, my circumstances are telling me there is no deliverance for me and God. But that's not the God that I know. David is reaffirming to himself. We could call this preaching the truth to yourself. When a false thought comes, when a lie comes, you combat that with truth. Notice David affirms three things about his God, what he knows him to be. First he's a shield. This is a reference to the Lord, Yahweh, being a help, a deliverer. And actually, he's directly confronting the mocking of verse 2. There's no deliverance for me. Yes, there is. He's a shield. Right? He's responding. Notice David says, you're a shield about me. I don't know if any of you have ever gone into battle before. Maybe you're just a Captain America fan. A shield doesn't really cover your whole body. you got defense on one side. I'll go back to my paintball illustration. I'm not very good at paintball, so I don't really play anymore. Uh, Brent's better. You can talk to him about some tips about memorization and paintball this morning. So There are certain bunkers put in place on each side of defense for your team of paintball. And I'm always, like, I'm always, like, hesitant to just kind of, like, full sail, like, run out there in front of everybody and be, like, hope that everybody's a bad shot because, you know, you have people, girls out there that are just, like, pulling the trigger and you could really get hit. Like, they weren't even trying, okay? Uh, I'll sit behind a bunker for a really long time and just kind of lose track of time and give someone like Brent enough time to sneak around, like, my safe territory and just be behind me, like, dude, what are you doing? My six was totally unguarded, unshielded. Okay, when David says, you, Lord, are a shield about me. David is making an interesting connection here. He's saying he's not like the shield in war. He is a shield that provides protection on all sides, complete, trustworthy protection. Job one ten, when Satan is telling God why Job is as an upstanding citizen as he is. He says, but God, you have put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side. Okay, is the same language here. You can see David's mind reminding himself that God is completely trustworthy shield who has his six every time he turns. And in that sense, he is combating the circumstance that might cause him to question his trust and his help that he has in God. But he says, no, he is a shield. Notice, he's, David says, he's not only my shield, but he's my glory. Now, while it seems understandable why David would cling to this metaphor of a shield in times of battle, it doesn't really seem to make sense why David would say, God, you're my glory and you're even the lifter of my head. What, what's going on here? The claim of God being David's glory is, is challenging. If we had time, we could take a peek at a few Psalms, 21, 5, 62, 7, and 4, 2, that could get us close to what I think David has in mind when he's clinging to God as his glory. Okay, in the Old Testament, um, human glory is recognized as the dignity or honor of the individual. In our context, we would say it's his pride, it's his self-esteem, it's his self-respect. Um, in the Old Testament, one's glory or honor or dignity came from their status. Like as a king, currently David's being run out, his kingship is being threatened by his son, his glory is somewhat lost. Glory, uh, honor, and dignity was attached to your wealth, your morality, your righteousness, okay? Um, Other received this for other reasons why in society people were looked at as something great. But we can say that for all of us, while we might not be a king or the richest in society, there is a basic human dignity that we all have as receivers of the image of God. We don't need a throne. We don't need wealth. We don't need wisdom or morality to be valued and esteemed before God. As David is walking through this trial where his soul is mocked by others to doubt in his God, his pride, his self-esteem, his glory, his dignity, his honor is marred. But what does he do? He resolves to trust that as long as he has God, he has dignity, he has honor, he has pride, he has self-respect. While David's identity may have been stripped away, his God had not been. And so therefore, his identity truly remained. When you and I walk through trials, our pride, our self-esteem, our self-respect is threatened to be damaged and stripped from us. Why? Because trials often leave us vulnerable, embarrassed, weak, and not looking like ourselves. And it is in this moment that we, with David, must resolve to allow our worth, our value, our dignity to be determined by God alone. So David reminds himself that God is his shield, his glory, and finally the lifter of his head. Now, if this truly is in connection with Second Timothy, excuse me, Second Samuel fifteen, the experience of David versus Absalom, which I think it'd be good for us to conclude that, um, we read that David is ascending a mount of olives in mourn cloth with a hood over his head, literally with his disposition down, sad, defeated, depressed, overwhelmed. Many are his foes. Many are causing him to doubt his God. But not only does God give David his dignity and his worth, but he lifts his head. This might seem interesting, again, at first blush, like my glory. What does my glory mean? Well, another place in Job 10, verse 15, when Job is re- replying to one of his friends, he's trying to come up with an answer of why he's experiencing suffering. Job says, if I am wicked, woe to me. And even if I am righteous, he says, I cannot lift my head. I am filled with shame and have drunk deeply of my affliction. Because of the circumstances, the trial, the suffering, we are often defeated to a place where the disposition, the, the, the face changes. That is an, also an Old Testament uh, expression of someone their circumstances change, and their disposition has changed because of it. In defeat and dishonor, it is difficult to lift our heads. I remember when I played soccer for Pensacola um, in 2017, we ended up winning the national title that year. Um, And you could just tell that as the time ticked down, right before that final whistle blew, and we were up a goal our heads were like, okay, can we be lifted yet? Can we run out on the field, right? When that whistle blew, there was an immediate rejoicing of our team and an immediate disposition change of the other team. Their heads dropped. There was no victory for them, only loss and defeat. In general terms, this lifting of the head, it signifies a movement from despair to hope. In times of trial, suffering, crisis, fear, it is hard for us to put on our suck it up face and move on and live life. We all know those type of people who wear their heart on their sleeve. Uh, You know that something is off their heads dropped, their faces blank, they're not engaging, right? Well, may our advice to them not be, cheer up, it'll all be fine, the sun will rise tomorrow. But rather, could we point them to the only one who can truly lift their head? That changes their disposition from disparity to trust? So not only does David remind himself of the character of God, Or excuse me, he resolves to trust in the character of God. But he reminds him of David's past, excuse me, of God's past faithfulness. Look at verses 4 and 5 together. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I think that it's safe to read the message of verse 5 as a result of verse 4. Meaning, The fact that David was able to sleep demonstrates the ability of the Lord to answer his prayer. He's in distress. He cries out to the Lord. And before he knows it, he's awoken the next morning, and he realizes, the enemy did not harm me. God must have heard me and answered me. He can sustain us. Um. Surrounded by enemies who wanted to kill him, David finds himself in a situation which I think naturally inviting insomnia would be the most, the best option, right? Like, I got to stay up all night and worry about this because if they come around and get me, I mean, I got to defend myself, right? He's most likely in a cave. But it is turning to God in prayer. He is put to sleep and he wakes up the next morning with this conviction, the Lord sustained me. David had found this answer to prayer to be his true experience because he woke up the next morning. David's cry and complaint to God and his resolve to trust in God has put him to sleep amidst impossible circumstances. And because of God's faithfulness to put David to sleep in the midst of his life being threatened, David concludes, hey, God can be trusted. David knew that he could sleep because he left his circumstances in the one who does not sleep or slumber, Psalm 121. God is not only trustworthy to protect David in the danger of the night when enemies were attacking, when he was vulnerable of losing sleep, but don't miss the fact that God gave David rest, a peace of mind that he could actually drift off into sleep without crippling anxiety of keeping him up all night long, worrying about his situation. Do you find yourself up at night? Unable to sleep because you've fixated on the circumstances that you're walking through? The principle for us involved in this shift that David does here is found all over the biblical narrative. I'll share one that's probably well-known. And we're going to see this principle. If one, if you and I, if we gaze too long on the enemy and the enemy's size and the enemy's power, the enemy grows in our mind to, a, to gigantic proportions that are totally unrealistic. Deuteronomy 1. Okay, it's time for the children of Israel to go into the land and conquer it. They bring a report back. Oh, no, no way. We can't go in there. Have you seen those guys? They're like nine feet tall. We're like grasshoppers to them. That's not reality. The difference between the giants and them was probably like three feet. And yet their fixation on their enemy before them caused them to feel this big and say, we're not going to do what God has called us to do. We can't do it. When you and I take a circumstance in our life and we get fixed on it, fixated on it in such a way that it consumes that circumstance actually becomes far greater than it actually is. When we fixate on our circumstances, it almost, we're almost giving it hypnotic power to allow us, open the door, let us believe anything we want. All those hypotheticals, we go down the staircase of what-ifs. That's not our ballpark. The things that we are concerned about, we're called to Trust the things that we have been given responsibility for, we're called to obey. We're not supposed to step into God's category. It is those things that we are to trust. And so we see David here give us a very helpful picture. Notice in, in verse 6 what happens to David's fear as he reminds himself of God's power to sustain him in the midst of his circumstance the fear is canceled. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Oftentimes at camp, we will do an activity that causes fear to our young people. We're going to go rappel off an 80 or 100 foot cliff and the only thing really holding you is a skinny little harness with, attached to a rope with a guy on the other end of it that you've never met in your life. It would not be enough for us to simply know said person's name on the other end of that rope to trust them. We're looking for credentials. How long have you done this? Do you have certifications? Like, can you tell me this whole contraption of rope, what's going on here? And oftentimes, that guide will over and over again, dealing with that individual who's very frightened of the exercise or the activity, he will say, look, I can hold you, your whole entire weight, I can hold you with two fingers because of the friction that's going on between your carabiner and your whatever the other, I don't know. I shouldn't be a guide. Right. Okay, what does that do? That brings comfort as the individual repels down the mountain. The physical rest and protection that God provided for David and the spiritual peace and rest that God provided for David to actually close his eyes and go to sleep in the midst of his circumstance was based on the fact that David knew a God that he could trust. So that those very multitudes or those many foes or those enemies which initiated David's cry at the beginning of the psalm now causes no fear. And this verse, acts as such a fitting conclusion to those middle sections. I'm not worried by the swarming of many enemies around me because I have Yahweh and he's my shield. I really want to quickly make this point because you and I might not be freed or saved from physical harm. You know, David claimed God as his shield, protecting him from harm. He woke up the next morning not harmed. But I think the reality of it is, are you and I always shielded from physical harm the way that David was? Should we take a psalm like this that says God is our shield and run with it so far that we then think we're promised freedom from all pain and harm? I I don't think that would be the right way to read this. It is true that we will experience pain and loss and suffering and heartache. We could go around the room this morning and take the rest of our time together of testimonies that yet there is evil in the world. The steady drumbeat of everyone who lives in a fallen world is you will experience evil. So how does this square with everything that we're reading? God is my shield. He protects me all around me. That might not be your experience. Well, the question it's a question of theodicy. It's how does a all good and all powerful God exist if evil exists in the world? We have no time this morning to tackle that one. But can I just give for those of us who are children of God this morning hope with a peek at two texts? Genesis fifty twenty and Romans 8.28. Genesis 50.20 is the conclusion of the Joseph story, and Joseph says this to his brothers at the end of it all. They're restored. They've already hugged and kissed and cried and laughed, laughed and scratched. One of my professor's favorite phrases. Okay, what does he say? You planned evil against me, but God planned it for good. That planning of evil intent and that planning of God for good, that is the same word used in the original language. With the same intent that Joseph's brothers meant to harm Joseph, God had that same weight, same purpose of intent for the good of Joseph. God had an equally good intention that rivaled the evil intention of his brothers. Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Every single experience of the Christian life can be viewed through the lens of this verse. Every single experience that you and I face as a believer, God is using to accomplish our good and his glory. We can cling to, to the promise that in God's hidden sovereign providence, he will always use evil to accomplish good for his children and ultimately to bring glory to himself. So in that ultimate sense, God does. God is a shield from all evil. For there is purpose in all things. And ultimately, we read in James 1, what is the purpose of every single minor key of providence that we experience in life it's to conform us to the image of Christ now in taking this little journey off to the side here I this does not I don't want to dismiss or make light of any evil or pain or suffering that you're facing rather this idea that God is always seeking to accomplish good even through evil should assure you that God uses the darkest of evils for your good and his glory. He does all things for the good of his children and the glory of himself. I've heard this mysterious use of how God uses evil for his good purposes to be compared to the, the scalpel of a surgeon. Every incision, every mark, every stitch or scar is not meant to harm you. It's not meant to to cause evil, but rather it is ultimately for your good. Even though you and I do not always know how these things aren't evil or aren't meant to harm us, we can trust the God who shields us, lifts our head, answers our prayers, sustains us, holds our future, all while knowing that he keeps us from harm. When life circumstances taunt your faith in God's character, we've seen that we must cry out to God with our complaint. We must remind ourselves of God's character and resolve to trust in it. And lastly, we must call on God to defend his proven character. Look at verses 7 and 8. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Now in this last section of the psalm, we have the only actual words that David addresses to God and calls him to do something for him. And it is, what we see here is David quite confidently calling on God to act. And David is now ready to make this bold request. God, arise, get up, almost, and save me. Because his request is set in God's character and in his past deliverance. David does not experience the trial and immediately throw up a bold prayer, God, get me out of this right now. I hate this. No. It's through deep mental and spiritual meditation on who God is and what he has done in the past that David then calls on God confidently to fight for him. The tones of these requests are quite strong. In the original language, God is, or David's actually commanding God to do something. And unless we saw how desperate David's situation was in front of us, and in, if we didn't, See how David trusted the faithful character of God? These bold requests might seem a little irreverent to us for someone to be commanding God to do something. But this expression, "Arise, O Lord," was actually a cry that Moses and the children of Israel made before they would get up from their journey, in the book of Numbers, chapter 10, we see it specifically they would call on God, "Arise." O oh Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those that hate you flee before you. In, the, in Hebrew warfare, I don't want to get too off here. Okay. Victory could only be achieved if God fought in and through his people. Human strength was insufficient. And so the symbol of the fact of the presence of God with his people was in the Ark of the Covenant. So when the large groups of Israelites would get up and journey, they would pick up the Ark, go before them, and they would say, Arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before us. During the time of David and other kings of Israel, the Ark would go before them into battle. And we see Saul in 1 Samuel use this as somewhat of a good luck charm, like, all right, we're not trusting the Lord, but let's... uh, Let's bring the uh, presence of God with us. Let's bring the ark in before us. See what he can do for us. Right? That's a poor use of this symbol. But here's what David is really saying here. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. With God's presence, victory would come and enemies would be annihilated. Now here's what's very interesting about what David does here in verse 7. The significance seems to be found in the fact that just like Israel would say, arise, O Lord, and the, 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 the Israelite forces and their, their armies would say, arise, O Lord. Israel would press forward in the wilderness with, with confidence in the face of the unknown. They had no idea how this circumstance was going to come out. But they would call on the Lord, arise, O Lord. The kingdom of Israel would press forward in battle with confidence in the face of the unknown. And in verse 7, the second half, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. David is pressing forward with confidence in God's plan even though the outcome is unknown. We could insert the word will in verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you will strike all my enemies on the cheek. You will break the teeth of the wicked. David, this is the level of confidence that David has in his God. So while Moses and the Israelites and David and his men knew that they were powerless without God, so they needed him, and while they knew that the future was uncertain without God, so they needed him, Arise, O Lord, go before us. God was just that for them. God was their strength. He was their confidence. I think we can conclude from, from David's example that when you and I are in trial and suffering, we make very strong commands of God sometimes. Like something about trials and suffering that just like changes how we speak to God. I think that's a reality. I know that is with me. Um, some might never even pray until this minor key of life comes their way. I'm reminded of Thomas Watson's quote, that which causes us to pray works for good. So I think that'd be a good thing. But what pain and suffering does for the believer is it has a way of awakening our need for God and shedding some light on our powerlessness to control everything. We are never more aware of our weakness and our feebleness when trials come our way. We have no control over them. And ironically, this is one of the blessings of trials and suffering if we would lean into it. The trials in our lives can actually become a place where we toss up our hands of self-dependence and reaffirm our dependence on God. Arise, O God, fight for me. In the face of uncertainty, you need to go before me. So these bold requests of David, deliver me, arise, they become a platform on which he claims his dependence on God. Maybe some of you are here this morning and you need to be reminded that you have no control over your situation. And in this way, our bold requests of crying out to God, they actually become more than just like expressions of need. They become prayers of faith that are anchored in what we believe about God, even when life circumstances are taunting us to doubt God. I think this boldness in prayer is often caught and not taught. What do I mean by that? Well, if I'm going to make a literary connection in the Psalms, David is echoing what Moses did. So in that way, David is actually leaning on a saint of old before him who trusted in God. He's leaning on a past experiences. He's taking the boldness of Moses and the Israelites and he's applying it to his situation. He's like, just like they trusted you, arise for me. David is leaning into the cry and bold prayer of an older saint. And that way, this situation is actually caught and not taught. I grew up in a small church that didn't really have a youth group on Wednesday nights. So I prayed with the men. It was in those times of prayer that I was able to learn what it meant to call on God boldly to act. While I was not going through a trial personally, I watched men call on God in desperation when family members were about to die, when wives were sick, when children were wayward. And in desperation and confidence, they would call on God to act, to deliver, to change their circumstances. And the confident prayers of other brothers and sisters in Christ can actually be contagious. They can be caught. Their confidence in God can be such a ministry of grace of our own confidence in God. It can actually embolden. Like we can actually steal the confident and boldness of another brother and sister in Christ, be encouraged by it in such a way, and turn around and make a proper response to God. Notice one more thing and we're, we're done. Notice what David, I've left this for the end, but notice what David does with this play on of words, this repetition. In verse two, or in verse one, oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising, okay? They're rising against me. And many are saying in my soul, there is no, I'll just say deliverance. There is no deliverance for me in God. And what does David turn around and do in verse seven? Arise, O Lord. Deliver me, O my God. While foes are coming my way, rising, seeking to attack me, God, you arise and fight for me. While they are taunting me, saying there is no deliverance in you, God, deliver me. And then notice David's confident ending expression in verse 8. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. David is responding back in confident trust to his fearful, fearful self. God, rise up against those who have risen against me. God, deliver me in the face of those who doubted that you can deliver. These words are expressions of David's deep confidence and trust when his enemies said that there would be no deliverance for him. David couldn't match the power of his enemies. It was clear that he was outnumbered. David couldn't match the numbers of his enemies. He was alone. But David can match the unbelief of his enemies. For he has faith in God. Where is this context for crying out to God for you and me? Where is this context for lament? In the safety of your covenant community. Church membership. It is in the membership of the church that we find shoulders to cry on, ears to listen, arms to hold, meals to provide, and voices to cry out to God with when life's minor keys taunt our faith in God. So let me just make a pastoral plug here, okay? Uh, Lean into small groups and prayer groups. They could be the very grace that God uses to lift you out of disparity in the midst of your hopeless circumstance. So when life circumstances taunt your faith in God's character, here's what we must do cry out to God with our complaint. Remind ourselves of God's character and tr- resolve to trust in it and confidently call on God to defend his proven character. Let's pray. Father, what a topic that we hardly ever consider. Father, what we want most is just to know how we can minister best to our other brothers and sisters in Christ when they experience loss and pain and when they are taunted by their earth's circumstances to doubt you. I pray that we would find the grace that is found in the Psalms of Lament for ourselves so that we can turn around and comfort those. Father, 2 Corinthians says that We only are able to comfort our brothers and sisters in Christ around us by the comfort by which you comfort us. I pray that we would cry out to you, resolve to trust in you, call on you to work for us. And in doing that, resolve to trust in you, find comfort that comes from that experience so that we might look up and minister to our other brothers and sisters in Christ. For it's in Christ I pray. Amen.